A big question that we're going to look at this morning in our series is something that for years and years, whenever I heard a speaker say they were going to talk about it, my heart used to sink. And that subject is faith. What does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to walk by faith, to live by faith and be a person of faith? I can already sense the discomfort in the room. And that's because if there's one thing that we all know, or we think we know, is that we don't have enough of it. And yet, we also know that faith is very important in the Christian life. Habakkuk 2.4 in the Old Testament is quoted three times in the New Testament. So it must be important. The righteous will live by faith. Hebrews 11.6 in the New Testament says, without faith it's impossible to please God. Who hasn't felt depressed by that one? So what is this thing called faith? And what does living by faith actually mean? Well, none of the early creeds tell us, and no statement of faith tells us. But there's plenty of stuff out there in the Christian world that wants to tell us. And none of these come with a recommendation, by the way. But you may well have come across them or something like them. So I want to start by looking at three ideas about faith, three assumptions that Christians will often make, things that you may have heard said or at least implied. The uh, first one is that faith has to do with mental certainty or mental assurance about getting the answer that we're praying for. An example of that is how the Living Bible translates Hebrews 11.1, 1, or I should say how it interprets it, because it's not what the original said, it's what the person who wrote the Living Bible thought that it meant by what it said. The Living Bible was a paraphrase that was originally written by Kenneth Taylor for his children. And faith, he said, is the confident assurance that something we want is going to happen. The certainty that what we hope for is waiting for us. Now, I was given a, a living Bible when I became a Christian as a teenager, so I assumed that this must be right. That having faith was this unshakable mental certainty that what I wanted to happen would happen. That it was just sitting there waiting for me, provided that I never let any doubts enter my head along the way. In case it then didn't happen, and it was just my lack of faith that was the reason why. So, this picture is me a few years ago, before my, before my six-pack became a 12-pack. Now, I thought that faith was a bit like that walking a, a kind of mental tightrope that you could fall off at any moment if you let any doubts creep into your head, any questions or negative thoughts or any uncertainties. And especially, you could never voice them out loud in what people used to call a negative confession. I was told that I just had to completely believe that God will do, quote, what he says in his word, Meaning, I think, that you find a nice verse and you claim it as obviously true in your situation 
And then you try really, really hard never to let any other possibility enter your head. Assumption number two is that something called faith has power in and of itself to make something happen. And that lack of faith will stop it happening. And this way of thinking is based on the idea that God has put in place some kind of impersonal cosmic power, uh, like the force in Star Wars, that can be tapped into, uh, mostly by special people, anointed people, men and women of God, as they're called. Luke Skywalker kind of Christians. You know, the kind that, as Darth Vader famously said, the force is strong with this one. So if, that, if that's right, then the only reason that we don't get what we pray for can only be lack of faith on the part of the person praying or lack of faith on the part of the person being prayed for. And either way, it would be somebody's fault, wouldn't it? So we'll come back to that a bit later. And then assumption number three is that faith is about quantity how much of it we've got. As if it's kind of measurable on a scale with perfect faith at one end and no faith at the other. Which kind of begs the question, how far along that scale do we need to be to get results, to get what we've prayed for? So let's use the analogy of GCSEs. Now, just to confuse matters, there are apparently two pass marks nowadays. A standard pass is a grade four, and a strong pass is a grade five. Surely, only a government department could come up with two different answers to the simple question, did I pass? Well, Johnny, it all depends what you mean by pass. Anyway, nine is the highest mark we can get and one is the lowest. Unless, of course, we get a U, which presumably means we didn't even spell our name right at the top of the paper. Okay, so here is the question. If you sat a GCSE in faith, what grade do you think that you would get? Would you pass? And if you get a strong pass, do you get bigger prayers answered or more prayers answered? If you get a grade three or below, do you get any prayers answered? And how do we know whether we've even achieved the pass mark? The implication is that we just work backwards from whether the thing that we prayed for happens or not. And that kind of made me wonder how people in the Bible would have got on with this. Now, Jesus would obviously have been a nine, at least. <laughs> the Apostle Paul would probably be next. After all, he did write most of the New Testament. But then again, he never got healed from that thorn in the flesh, did he? Even though he prayed three times for God to take it away. Even though he saw lots of other miracles for other people. So I think that lack of faith, that failure to have this confident assurance that something he wanted was going to happen, even though, as Kenneth Taylor tells us, it was just waiting for him, 
that has to bump Paul down a bit. So I think we'll give him a seven. And then there's Jesus' disciples. Now this is a, this is a tricky one. Because it was to them that Jesus famously said, O ye of little faith. And he said it more than once. So if you read the Gospels, there are certainly times when you'd struggle to give them more than a three. But they were the people that Jesus chose to build his church on. So he must have known what he was doing. So I think let's be generous and we'll give them a five. Now, of course, I am being a little flippant here. I'm sure you realize that. But I wonder if you can see some of the problems. Now, you may say, you may be thinking, why does all this matter, Steve? Stop being so fussy. If it's encouraging people to have faith, then where's the harm in that? But you know, quite often, uh, a lot of harm is being done. Maybe you've experienced that in your own life. Because although it offers a convenient explanation for why someone doesn't get healed, it does so at the cost of heaping the blame on the person praying, or even worse, on the person being prayed for. Because it's effectively saying that it's their fault. It could have happened and it would have happened if only they had had enough faith. And doesn't make God look that good either. Jesus loves us enough to go to the cross for us, but he withholds answers to our prayers unless we achieve a certain score on a faith scale, without us even knowing what the pass mark is. So answers to prayers can feel like God dangling a carrot on a stick just in front of our noses. If only we'd had just that bit more faith. This wouldn't have happened. That wouldn't have happened. This person wouldn't have died. That person would have been healed. It could have happened and it would have happened if only we had had enough faith. It's as if God is saying to us, sorry guys, maybe next time. But you know, this kind of thinking turns God into a prayer answering machine that just needs to be programmed right in order to get results. It makes God into a process instead of a person. Praying becomes a mechanism instead of part of a relationship. So what it's actually doing is encouraging us to put our faith in faith rather than our faith in God. And it implies that we can't have any questions or any fears about life or doubts about God or the Bible or anything. Because if we do, then we might jeopardize the outcome. And then finally, it encourages us as Christians to cherry pick verses, cherry pick promises. Taking the nice verses from their original contexts and turning them into universal truths that we then tell God he must honor because they're in his word. It encourages us to think that we can improve the odds of our prayers being answered if we name them and claim them. Now, please don't misunderstand me on this because of course there are many, many 
promises in the Bible and we see signs and wonders and we see answers to prayer. And of course, the reason that they're in the Bible is to encourage us that these are the kind of things that God can do and at times he will do. But you know, God knows all those verses as well as we do. He doesn't need to be told by us what he must do because of them in particular situations. You see, the basic problem is that all of those ways of thinking are presenting faith as if it's a transaction with God rather than part of a relationship with God. They're presenting a God who seems to have expectations of us that we know and he must know we could never live up to. Because if that is what faith is, then we really are not going to succeed. All these ways of thinking about faith inevitably make you and me feel like failures. But you know, our God is not a God who says that. He, he's not a God who says you will never succeed in what I ask of you. Any more than any loving parent or teacher would ever say that to a child. Asking them to do stuff that they are guaranteed to fail at. So if none of that is what faith is all about, then I wonder what might be a better way of thinking about it. One that puts relationship back in the center. Faith in God rather than faith in getting answers. So the New Testament Greek word is pistis. And that word had a range of meanings. But its primary meaning was trust loyalty and commitment to someone or something. So our best word nowadays to mean the same would be trust. And trust is shown by our doing rather than by our thinking. Faith is a doing word, just like love is a doing word. It's not a feeling word, it's not a thinking word or even a believing word. Whether we've got faith or not is not shown by a brain scan. A person of faith is someone who acts in ways that are faithful to someone or something. Okay, so here's the problem. In modern English, we have two words, faith and faithfulness. And we tend to think of them as meaning different things, don't we? But in the Bible, they only had just that one word for faith and faithfulness. Because for them, faith was faithfulness. So modern Bible translators need to make a decision here as to which of those two modern English words they're going to use. And the decision that they make influences what we today think that a verse is saying. For example, Habakkuk 2.4. In the 1984 edition of the NIV, it says the righteous shall live by faith, with a footnote, or by faithfulness. But then in the 2011 edition, they flip that around. The righteous shall live by faithfulness, with a footnote, or by faith. So, if faith is faithfulness, 
and it's a doing word, then what is living by faith? And I suggest to you that the answer is this. It's making the decision to live faithfully to the way that a person would live, doing all the things that a person would do with their time, their money, their affections, their decisions in life and their priorities in life, if they knew for sure that what we believe about God and Jesus and the Christian story was true. And keep on doing that, whatever happens in life. So if we start to think about living by faith like that, then it completely changes things. Because any doubts or questions or uncertainties or even fears become irrelevant. To have those is only human and God of course knows that. So having faith is not about somehow eliminating all doubts and questions. Faith is about the choices that we make as to what we're going to do and how we're going to live despite them. Living the way that trusting people would live and faithful people would live. Now it's a bit like in marriage. Being faithful or unfaithful is not defined by whether we have the right beliefs about marriage. Whether we believe in faithfulness is not the point. It's defined by what we do or don't do as a married person. So faithfulness in marriage is a doing word, not a believing word. And of course, it's relational, isn't it? It's defined by what we do and don't do in relation to a person. I suggest that we won't get very far telling our partner that although, yes dear, I did have an affair, don't worry because I never once stopped believing in faithfulness. Good luck with that one. In Mark chapter 9, there's a story of a, a father of a boy who was demon-possessed and couldn't speak. And he comes to Jesus and they have a short conversation. And then the father says to Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Not exactly unshakable mental certainty there, I would suggest. If you can do anything, Jesus. Now, much as you and I might want to be biblical, I suggest that our credibility in a prayer meeting will not be greatly enhanced by starting off as that man did. Dear Lord, if you can do anything. So then Jesus says to the man, everything is possible for one who believes. And the man responds with an amazing statement. He says, I do believe, help my unbelief. So it seems like a really high score on that faith scale, and even less so, unshakable mental certainty, was not what Jesus was looking for. Jesus simply asks the man to believe in what's possible. And that brings us to the other side of that coin. The opposite of faith is not too little faith, and it's not a lack of certainty. The opposite of faith is deliberate unbelief. God 
can't do this. God won't do this. It's impossible. The opposite of faith is a refusal to believe. And because faith is relational, what that amounts to is a refusal to believe in the goodness of God. It says in Matthew 13 that Jesus only did some miracles in Nazareth because of that. The Greek word there means disbelief, refusing to believe. So it's not that faith is some powerful force to make things happen, but active and deliberate unbelief can be a powerful force to stop things happening. And that's because unbelief is exercising our free will option of saying no thank you to divine possibilities. So unbelief is the don't bother option for Christians. Don't pray for healing. Don't invite the Holy Spirit. It's basically saying there's no point. And of course, God will respect that. So the good news about a lack of faith, if I can put it that way, is that it isn't something that you and I are in danger of falling into by accident. It's not grade three or below on a faith scale. It's a deliberate decision not to believe. And that kind of makes it fairly easy to live by faith, does it not? So what that means is that we always pray. We always have an attitude of expectancy. We pray expectantly. And we allow for divine possibilities when we pray. But all the time we show that we're continuing to trust Jesus, living by faith, meaning we live our lives the way that a person would live, we do the things that a person would do if what they believed was true. Always trusting in God's goodness, whatever the outcome of any particular prayer. But what we don't do is any naming and claiming, because that is missing the point. Answers to prayer are never about us, they're always about him. So I want to finish by having a look at a proper translation of Hebrews 11.1. 1. That was the verse that we looked at at the beginning in the Living Bible. So, a bit of background. The whole of that chapter of Hebrews 11 is about the so-called heroes of faith of the Old Testament. And we see there example after example of people whose faith is being celebrated. Not for what they thought in their heads, but for what they did in their lives. The choices they made to live faithfully to the story being true. And especially what they did when the chips were down. If you read the chapter later, you'll see exactly what I mean. And I think a really good example that you'll find there is Rahab, who hid the Israelite spies in Jericho in Joshua chapter 2. Now, if you read that, you will see that there is no hint whatsoever in her story that the faith that she was being celebrated for had anything whatsoever to do with mental certainty or the absence of any doubts or fears. In fact, I'd suggest that it was probably the very opposite. 
She must have been metaphorically wetting herself the whole time in case she'd got this wrong. You can imagine what they would have done to her if they'd found out that she'd betrayed them. I mean, that really was faith spelled R-I-S-K, as John Wimber used to say. It's not even in the same league as getting the odd prophetic word a little bit wrong. So for all of those heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, living by faith was living the way that someone would live, doing the things that someone would do if what they believed was true. Faith for them was a doing word. It was trusting in a God that they couldn't see and in a future that they couldn't see, whatever was happening in the present. And if you look at it, for some of them, what was happening in the present was pretty shocking. Some of these heroes of faith were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawn in half and others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith. Yet none of them received all that God had promised. And that's because for them, that wasn't how faith worked. But it was how faithfulness worked. But none of that looks much like a confident assurance that something we want is going to happen, as Kenneth Taylor put it. And this helps us to make sense of verse 1 of Hebrews 11, but this time looking at it in a proper translation. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So, faith happens, living by faith is happening, when we turn things that can't be seen into things that can be seen. In other words, our lives become that substance. Our lives become the visible evidence of things that people can't see, like God. So faith becomes embodied. Faith becomes trust put into action. So it's not something that we have, it's something that we do. Doing faithfulness, being faithful. So a person of faith is someone who is living in ways that are visible evidence of the story of Jesus being true. Someone who matches up their time and energy with the story being true. And their financial giving with the story being true and their priorities in life with the story being true, and their big decisions in life with the story being true. People who basically throw their lot in with this story being true over every other story, letting his story 
take charge of my story. Rather than bolting on little bits of his story, the least costly bits, onto a life that is fundamentally all about my story. People of faith are expectant when they pray because they believe in divine possibilities, but not in formulaic certainties. They never doubt that God loves to heal, but they always put their faith in God, not in the healing. They believe in the nature and character of God, not in the nature and character of faith. They keep on believing that and they show that by keep on praying for more people and more situations because they never stop trusting in the fundamental goodness of God, of who he is and what he's like. So people of faith are people who've made a decision to keep on loving God and to keep on praying for people, whatever the outcome may be of any particular prayer. Because God is still good and God is always good. So Hebrews 11.6 is right. Without faith it is impossible to please God. But with that kind of faith it very much is possible to please God. Living by faithfulness to what we believe and the God that we believe in being true. It's a parable of the talents kind of faith. It's a well done, good and faithful servant kind of faith. And remember how we saw in Habakkuk 2.4, that verse, the righteous shall live by faithfulness. Well, in the next chapter, the very next chapter, Habakkuk 3, it shows us what that might need to look like in practice. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, which in their world was pretty much describing what complete disaster looks like, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. And that is living by faith, not by sight. That is living by faithfulness to what we believe being true, whatever we see. So this is faith as faithfulness and trust and loyalty and commitment to the nature and character and goodness of God that we see in Jesus. It's faith meaning staying faithful to the story, whatever life throws at us. Matt, can I ask you and the worship team to come back? Thank you. So we're going to have a time of worship now. A bit later, we would love to pray with you if anything has resonated this morning. And especially if you've maybe lived with the guilt and the regret that if only you'd had more faith, something bad wouldn't have happened in the past. I'd also like us to pray if you've had a sense of the Holy Spirit saying that maybe not everything in your life lines up right now with the way that a person would live and the things that a person would do if this story of Jesus and his kingdom was true. So if that is you, then I, I think he would like that to change starting today.
And the technical word for that is repentance, which simply means changing our mind and changing our direction of travel, changing some of the things that we do. Making a decision to bring the way that we use our time and our energy in line with the story of God being true. To bring our financial giving in line with the story being true and our priorities in life with it being true. In spite of the questions and the doubts and even the fears that are only natural to have. And just finally, the reason that it's important to bring our financial giving in line is because Jesus said that wherever our treasure is, our heart goes also. It's Matthew 6, 21. In other words, our heart will follow our treasure. Where our treasure is shows Jesus where our heart is. So maybe today's a great day to decide to be that kind of person of faith.